Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me to discuss the puzzler of a based-on-true-events story about a classic video game is my best friend and co-host and brand-new member of the Southeastern Film Critics Association, Patrick Hicks. Wow. It feels... It looks different up here in critic world. I, I don't I don't know. It's a little bit darker, you know, a little bit more more cynical. But I, I think I think I'll be okay here. <laughs> you know that it's a requirement now that all of your star ratings drop by at least a half, if not one now for every single okay. movie you see. It's just like once you put film critic next to your name, you have to just be more cynical <laughs> about okay. the movies. Yeah. <laughs> Noted. Noted. <laughs> no, I'm super excited for you. And it's just awesome to finally have you find an organization that is close enough <laughs> that they're able to uh, have you be a part of it. And I'm jealous. I'm not jealous. Uh, what's the right word here? I, I selfishly. Selfish. That's the word I was looking for. I'm selfishly looking forward to award season in particular when you will now also be getting stacks of DVDs and Blu-rays and many a link to watch all of these movies early <laughs> and we can yeah. actually talk about some of them. So I think it'll be fun to be able to have more of a presence during the awards buildup in the coming years. Yeah, I think that, you know, as we have sort of rearranged feel and film and I had scaled back on some of the more intensive stuff, one of the things that I've missed and hopefully we can maybe not recreate that or get back to the original is that end of year reaction episode, like what we loved. Um, in particular, I miss the stack of short films, the conglomerate of like, the, I think it's like four. It's like short doc, uh, short film, live action, animation. Those were always fun for me because they were they were digestible. I could knock those out and then we could just talk about them. And they gave me dogs in the fight beyond just your best Oscar, best Oscar, best picture, best director. So I'm hoping that being part of Sefka is going to give me more of those opportunities to request or be sent. And as I've been sort of getting to know the people via the website and all their bios, there's, there's several, it's, it's a lot, a lot of people. And I love that they're just, I mean, it is, it's the Southeastern Film Critic Society or Association where you have folks from the Carolinas. I've got several from Georgia. I don't know if I'm the only one from Arkansas, but if I am, great. Uh, I don't mind representing the natural state. So I'm, I'm looking forward to all that, looking forward to getting to know some new people, and I'm grateful for the nomination and the pick. I think I was uh, one of seven that got in this year, and so it, it felt really good to get that notification and then to officially be a part of um, the film critic world. Yeah. Heck yeah. I'm so pumped. Have to update your bios on the website and on Rotten Tomatoes ASAP. I will That's right. get on That's that. Right. <laughs> well, I don't know if you know this, Patrick, but we have not done a main episode in literally an actual month at this point. It's been a minute. Yeah, it's definitely been <laughs> a lot. No, that's a lot of minutes. 
that's a lot of minutes. <laughs> but it's been a nice break, honestly. I've had a lot going on, and you've obviously had tornadoes to deal with last week. But I am very glad to be back here, sitting down to talk with you a couple of times uh, in the next few days, which is an exciting way to come back. And I'm looking forward to what we'll be covering. So let's just go ahead and jump right in. We are talking about the movie Tetris that is currently streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. We will be spoiling this absolute crazy story. So if you don't know it or you haven't Googled it or you haven't watched the movie, come back after you do that and then you can give us a listen. That's your spoiler warning. All right, first obligatory question when we're talking about the adaptation or the telling, I guess, of a, of a, bi- a biopic, a true story. Did you have any idea about this going into this movie? Did you expect that to be what this movie was about? Or did you think it was going to be about playing the game Tetris? Like, how did you initially respond to seeing this film? Well, I definitely wanted to go into it blind because I had heard tell from you and I think from Don Shanahan at uh, Every Movie Has a Lesson about really going into it with a minimal exposure that it's a biopic, it's about the game, it's about its sort of journey from Russia to our hands. And then I heard from you via Don, I think, that it was kind of like the social network, and that's always going to be fun. So I like a good biopic. I definitely like Taron Edgerton as much as he gets criticized for Eddie the Eagle that has like maybe 2% of factual information in it. I loved his portrayal of Eddie the Eagle. And just as an actor, I really enjoy watching him portray the people that he does. He's the, I guess he's the biopic King at this point where he plays like real life people, uh, Eddie, the Eagle, Elton John, and now, um, Hank Rogers. So, you know, I don't know if he's typecast, like, do we need another biopic actor? Let's get Taron on the job. But I didn't really have much of a an intrigue into it except i didn't even know it existed to be honest until you told me about it and then i'm like cool what made it over the top for me in terms of like being excited about it was that we were supposed to record our episode last week as we're recording now and tornadoes decided to change those plans and so we've delayed and in that delay my wife had heard about it and she's like hey I'd like to watch that. Oh, that's awesome. And I'll tell you. Yeah. So we sat down and watched it and she finished it and she said, now I want to play Tetris. And I'm like, well, I've got an emulator. I've got a computer, a PC version. I've got pretty much every version that they talk about besides the arcade console. And I think that, as I've mentioned before, that's always what makes the podcast and watching movies a little bit more enjoyable is when my wife is into those movies with me. And barring a bad theater experience, we usually it usually just elevates my enjoyment of it. And I really liked it. I liked most of it. Uh, I thought there were parts that were a little uneven. And at times I felt like it got a little lost in what it was trying to be. But even in those parts where it felt different from other parts of the movie, it was unapologetic in those moments. So if it's going to be a thriller, it's unapologetic. If it's going to be quirky video game biopic, it's going to be unapologetic. So all those pieces didn't work like perfectly, but it was one of those movies that I really enjoyed and it kept my attention the whole time. 
Yeah, it definitely does that. It, it is a riveting movie that it, there's so much going on. And I think it, it handles it fairly well. It, it's pretty complicated business stuff, to be honest. There, there were times when I was like, maybe we need to pull out uh, like the big short and like get Margot Robbie in a bathtub and explain this to me. I was just, I was <laughs> thinking that same thing. I was like, wait, wait, what rights do you own, but don't own? Wait, yeah. wait, how did this work? So there how were a couple wait, of moments on. like yeah. that, but it, it did a good enough job. I think of keeping me on track of what was happening. I think younger audiences might struggle. We're definitely older now in our lives. <laughs> we're in our forties. So we've been around the block and we, know a lot of these business terms just having you know acquired the knowledge of them over time but it does a decent job there and it is just always riveting it's always interesting what is happening and mainly because it plays out so much like a thriller and i was not expecting any of this so i didn't know any of the history myself either going into the movie i actually knew they had announced that there was going to be a Tetris movie with Taron Egerton. For some reason, logic, I guess, I assumed it was going to be about the game. And, you know, I, I actually didn't know what it was going to be. Like, I didn't know if he was playing, you know, the L block or the, the square block or what. I didn't know what it was going to be. I was very curious. But I it was because I had no earthly idea that there was this incredible story about the rights to the game and how it made its way out of Russia and essentially into the hands of people all over the world. And it's just fascinating. I am not going to go into the deep comparison on this podcast, but I will encourage people to check out an article online. I can't remember if it's a Screen Rant article that I found. Screen Crush has an article called Tetris the Movie's True Story. I recommend reading it because there are some differences to characters and how their relationships worked. Uh, Hink and Alexei in particular is not quite as it's portrayed in the movie. And there's some further on elements to the story that includes like an unsolved double murder. It's some wild stuff that has come about from this entire uh, situation. So read about the full story as well to kind of supplement your enjoyment of seeing this film. That's my recommendation. So Patrick, my first thought as we were going through this movie and we were learning about all of these rights and how they were acquired and the different rights, the arcade rights, the console rights, the handheld rights, all of those things, but in Japan, all of those things, but in the United States, <laughs> uh, the difference in what you could acquire. One thing that I was absolutely blown away by was this element of like the middleman. We had this character who was essentially going around doing the deals, but actually didn't own anything ever. And, and there was just this weird, almost confusing at times setup of what does Hink actually do? Like what, how did, how does this happen? Cause it felt to me, especially at that initial time where he finds out about Tetris, where he's at CES with his game and he sees it and he just goes up to this guy and the guy's like, yeah, I'll give you the rights. <laughs> and he's like, 
you know, cool, here's a $5 bill. And now you got the rights to Tetris. But, but if nobody actually owns these things or doesn't have it in a contract, it, it was just shocking to me, I guess from someone who is, I am so much a rule follower in many ways. Like I want things to be black and white. I want things to be on paper. And these people seem to be operating outside the bounds of that, which obviously led to all of this confusion and this infighting amongst them, um, this squabble over who actually owned what. But I just was kind of completely in shock watching this whole thing at how essentially unprofessional everything went down on all sides. Yeah, and I think we have to think about this in terms of the time period. And not that in the mid to late 80s, which my wife and I were sort of hilariously debating back and forth, what year is this? Because it never, I, I, we never picked up the year. And so we we're trying to think, okay, when did the Game Boy come out? I was thinking that it was prior to Chernobyl because the USSR was still just that. Turns out it was like 88, 89. So there were still a few years that Gorbachev was in power before the wall finally, you know, the Iron Curtain finally came down and, and all that. And so when I when I'm watching this movie, I totally agree in that this just feels like a handshake deal most of the time with a letter of intent. And it sort of bothered me because I was trying to wrap my 2023 head around all that and being like, wait a minute, you've got an IP. There's like there's shark tank type stuff going on where you're like getting equity and licensing and all this other stuff. And so the 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 investment brain of my of mine started kicking in and I'm thinking about Shark Tank and thinking about uh, the profit. Uh, one of my one of my favorite shows from CNBC with Marcus Lemonis. And I'm trying to inject that knowledge or that understanding into this. And it's not working because of exactly what you're saying, this oversimplification of the rights to something. And ultimately, it comes down to contracts. It comes down to letters of intent, written pieces of paper that are faxed back and forth that become the thing. And I think what that allowed the movie to do was to lean really, really heavily into that thriller aspect of it. Because just like with the big short, you're trying to create action from something that's very business heavy. Like if you think about it, securing the rights to a video game, you pitch that to some studio execs, that's not going to be a great, I mean, you're going to have to pitch something really, really cool. And so I think adding that thriller element, whether or not it was completely true, again, I haven't read the article, I don't know what's what and what's not, but I'm willing to sp suspend my disbelief for certain elements if the story is consistent throughout. And so that's what I think that simplification allowed for was essentially the economic chase. And the other thing that it did was it vaulted this idealistic pride of Russia. So I've covered on an original series, Chernobyl, with my buddy Adam. Uh, we've been going through Stranger Things, which has a Russian element to it as well. And so it's been really cool to be able to see, okay, how is Russia portrayed in a given story? And I really think that this movie got the pride of a country that, you know, if it's 1987, they're coming off a huge disaster with Chernobyl and trying to save face, leading to the eventual downfall. And I think that that really 
is what I attached myself to was this element of pride, this element of holding on to something versus trying to get <laughs> a quick buck, you know, someone seeing the end of a dynasty, the end of a, a this ginormous entity known as the Soviet Union versus somebody who still is loyal to the end. And while I can't agree one lick with the idea of communism and the essence of that, I absolutely can attach myself to this idea of pride and saying, look, till the bitter end, I'm doing this for something bigger than myself. And we got those characters from this movie. And at the center, at the center of it was Hank, who's sort of negotiating or dealing with all this stuff together. And I think that 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 Taryn's character, the way he portrays it, is such a great everyman for us because it would be like you were dropping an American into this and going, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how dark the cloud was over Russia, how cut off from what I would consider normalcy this is. And I, I didn't expect that from Tetris. <laughs> I didn't expect that from an IP <laughs> right. rights contest or competition to have all that. And I'm really glad that we got it. Yeah. It's interesting because you have two sides to the Russians as well. You have Elorg and the head of Elorg who is operating on what he understands as the rules of the country. But then you also have this very shady politician who's got the KGB in his pocket and is out for his own personal gain, the corrupt side of government. And I think it plays well because our expectations when we walk into that room as a viewer are all the Russians are corrupt. At least I did. I thought to myself, you know, this is communism. This is right before the fall of Gorbachev. They talk about it in the movie very clearly a few times about how things are about to go south and how they manage their profile across the world is very, very important right now. And so you kind of get this idea that they're just, they're all out for their own gain only. But then as the story progresses, you really start to see that there's a little bit of a difference there. And like you just kind of were speaking to, it's honorable. And why shouldn't they? Like they were, they were getting taken advantage of. That was the whole point of what they were trying to avoid. Like the guy from Elorg, he at the end is very upfront about saying, you know, he he's struggling because he's like being told by the politician, no, you need to take this other deal. And he's like, but that's not what we do. We we may not be the best negotiators. We may not do things necessarily the most ethical way, but like we always do it in service of getting the best deal for Mother Russia. And now you're telling me to take not the best deal for Mother Russia. And he starts to question the purpose of the order, essentially, instead of just being the robot. And I loved that yeah. so much. Yeah. Well, and I think something else that I was afraid would happen is it would get kind of tropey and hokey with the Russians. And again, having the exposure that I've had over the last several months to <laughs> multiple versions of Russians, even within a TV show like Stranger Things, I was afraid that the KGB guy would become like this mustache twirling one, the one that was trying to bribe Mirosoft, and that 
he would become sort of the like the wacky like oh you tried to you know pull one over on mother russia where you're going to be taken down no he was a legit threat throughout the movie and even to the bitter end he was trying to negotiate when when hink was and the nintendo folks were getting ready to take off on a plane now that seemed kind of weird to me it's like wait a minute so if you make it onto a plane then that means you're good. And again, I think it goes back to the fact that you have a signed contract. If you don't make it out of Russia, which is essentially an iron curtain, you can't get out. They're just going to rip that thing from your hand. And now it's null and void and nobody's going to be the wiser. But I like the fact that he didn't devolve into a flatter character, that he wasn't just a means to an end. He legitimately represented corruption for his own selfishness. So as you were saying, and I love the way that, that sort of it's turned on its head, where we think as Americans, Russia's corrupt. You've got socialism, Marxism. You've got like manipulating the people with this false idea that everybody's going to get equal. And in fact, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So we already have that mentality going into a movie like this. And so for a story like this to allow us to have sympathy for the loyalty to Russia through this this game president, this this um you know Egon, I keep wanting to call it Egon. <laughs> Elorg. <laughs> but seeing how he wants to do what's best, it really is a form of socialism, doing what's best for the people, but really for the form of the country as a whole. Right. Not the individuals, so, obviously. Because Alexi not the, not the individual that's yeah. the whole thing is Alexi is the creator of this game gets nothing. Yes. Yes, exactly. So it, it it's dualistic, right? It's this really great way to portray an honesty about the Soviet Union. That we can have sympathy for a guy who supports the the loyalty of a country at the expense of the individual creator. And so we can both support and be completely against this guy. <laughs> and I yeah. think it's really fascinating to feel that way because in the end, I wanted Alexi to get his stuff. I wanted him to get credit. In fact, at one point, my, w- my wife, she's so smart when it comes to this, in the scene where he is, he is showing Hank his original mm-hmm. game made out of uh, parentheses yeah, so cool. or brackets. So cool. This is great. He does some programming that gets us to where we are now with Tetris with the four block getting a quote Tetris and then sliding the blocks down. And my wife leaned over. She goes, they're changing the code enough that he could probably sell it as a different game. And I'm thinking, what game would he sell it as? Like Tetri, Metris, Betris, what? But no, she's right. I mean, there's an L and I thought that they were actually going that route and it turns out they didn't. But those elements are now in what we now know as Tetris. So I I really like that sort of conflict that we that we get in that we are in the world of understanding the Russian mindset, but even amongst the Russian people, there's still a, a schism of ideologies. And one is corrupt. Give me the short term $2 million for myself so I can live off this because I know the Soviet Union is going to crap. And then you have the loyal long term benefit that doesn't even think about the individual who actually supplied the thing that's getting you all of that benefit. Absolutely. And did you see the KGB agent 
coming? Did you, did you know that the translator? No, I, that caught me completely off guard, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> that feels very Cold War thriller." <laughs> once it happens, and it made perfect sense because I remember when she goes to kiss him. I thought to myself, "Man, th- he's lucky. Like this isn't in public." <laughs> And, you know, he's able to just immediately push her off and be like, no, I'm married. I'm not interested in that. And it and it's over right then and there. She doesn't press the issue or anything. And then to see that come back as a form of intentional blackmail was like, oh, it's gutting. But that leads me to talking about Hank. And this is one of the places where I found the movie to be challenging. Great performance. You've said that. Egerton always is so charismatic. Like he is fantastic. So this is not about the performance. This is about the character as I feel the movie is trying to sell us on. I have issues rooting for this guy. And I wanted to know how you ended up feeling about him. And I'll tell you what my issues are. When he makes the initial push to get the rights, when he goes to Nintendo of America, he or maybe it's the first time when he goes to Nintendo of Japan, but he essentially puts his house up against as collateral saying, I'm going to get this done. His wife's not on board with this at first. She's a little worried about how this is going to go down. And then later when he rushes off to Russia, okay, that's one thing when it very clearly quickly becomes dangerous and he Stay and stays and stays. And then even after finding out that his family was approached by people who essentially were making veiled threats against them, he continues to push onward, push onward. He misses his daughter's musical, but then gets this redemptive moment in the end when everything's okay, when he's already achieved the goal. He's already won at that point. They've got the money. They are the company's in good shape. They they have the rights to Tetris. Like that's when he gets his redemptive moment. And then also the way that he doesn't negotiate for Alexi. The friendship with Alexi is made out to be important in the movie. And I loved the relationship and the scenes between the two of them as they got to know each other. But he tells him, don't worry, I'm going to get these things for you. I'm going to get these things for you. But it doesn't happen during the contract negotiations, right? And I, I, that was a little off-putting to me too. And I just, in the end, I, I'm not going to say I wasn't happy for this guy, but this was not the type of story where I found myself attached to Hank Rogers going, this guy is doing something for the greater good. It felt honestly like somewhat of just another selfish guy who wanted to get his. And he happened to have a great vision that this game was a big deal. But the game being a big deal, Patrick, is not a humanitarian effort. It's not like he was doing something for the greater good of humanity in getting this video game in people's hands via the Game Boy. It's a freaking video game, man. It's about making money. And so for me, some of the decisions he made along the way really had me left at an arm's distance from seeing him as I think the film was trying to kind of prop him up to me. I don't know if you had any sort of conflict like that, but that's that's what I was feeling. I didn't have conflict. I was sort of along for the ride. What I put in my head was this is basically the Michael Burry of Tetris. 
Here's a guy who understands the nature of what he's going to do. He's not cutthroat per se. I think he's made out to be somewhat sympathetic because he owns a business that his wife is an equal partner in. And he's got a solid family. Clearly, he has a history of ups and downs with this business. And she's sort of moving alongside him with that. So when he puts his house up, I had to believe that the history that they have together as husband and wife and as partners, yes, it was a big risk, but it was a risk that I think they knew enough intimately about each other that he could make that decision for the both of them, that she trusted him. Where I think it went off the rails was what I think for dramatic effect we were meant to feel in order to get that redemptive moment at the end, which is him missing out on his daughter's performance. And then the second half of the, you know, that's the second half of the movie where the, the second act starts happening and the downfall, <laughs> the big conflict, and he bangs the phone against the counter and they walk in and he looks like a douche dad. I think all that is played for effect to show that he's neglected his family. The problem is, is that their family has not been a centerpiece for the movie. And so it both works and doesn't for me when they get their moment. It's like, ah, I got the big fat check. Now I'm going to make amends with my wife who's going to forgive me. We're going to spend this evening holding hands, watching our daughter's recital. To me, that was the bow that I think was not well thought out. And I, I think it was an afterthought. I think it was something like, okay, we need to reconcile this. Because the fact is, you've been living with him throughout this whole movie, building this relationship with Alexi, building this relationship with these other individuals. I forgot about his family. I would have, if I wrote this, I would not have included his family in this. I would have taken that liberty to say that his wife was not a significant part of this story because she wasn't. She was only significant because he was a bad husband and father for five minutes. And I think that's how it ended up playing by the end of the movie is that, oh, I had a bad moment. I was so obsessed. I was being a capitalist, which is all true. But because we didn't spend enough time with them, because we got a couple of moments of him being neglectful and we, I could see, I mean, I could foreshadow it. You know, he's like, he, his daughter wants to show him her practicing and he's like, I got a pack. And I'm like, oh, okay, he's going to, he's going to become the, the, oh, yeah. the, the guy that ignores his The family. second that she says, you promise you'll be there, daddy. You know, that any he's movement, not gonna be you're there. not going to be there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, it, that to me was a little, I mean, it's very familiar, very kind of formulaic. I don't know that the movie needed this, honestly, because there was enough about it that, I never felt like he was a hero. I was rooting for him because he was the protagonist. He wasn't the hero per se. He was the capitalist against the socialist. That's kind of the battle that I saw was a battle of capitalism versus socialism. And you have this pawn in the form of Alexi who is being carried along. And I think that his friendship with him, it should have been vaulted more. And you're right. There should have been a conversation. If this really happened, there should have been conversations at the table. You want 50 cents? You want a dollar? 15 cents of that goes to Alexi. Every dollar that you spend or that you get for, for every unit, 15 cents goes. Kind of like equity. Whether or not that went down that way, I don't know. But I think his family felt a little bit like bookended 
okay, we got to humanize him. Otherwise, he just looks like a capitalist dude that we can't care about. And I don't think that's the case. I mean, I think we could care about him regardless. I think you're right. I think, and I th- it's kind of like capitalist versus capitalist, honestly, because you just got the corrupt capitalists <laughs> who are the Maxwell versus yeah. him yeah. who wants to portray himself as the idealist capitalist. But like, they're all out to make money. It's a business movie. I think you're right, though, on the Alexi thing. And I'm projecting this onto the movie because I want to believe this now as it just hit me in as I was thinking about this. But, you know, Alexi does come along later out of Russia. And perhaps there was an understanding that wasn't going to get done in Russia. Like you weren't going to be able to get that into the contract and have it bought off on period. And so the only way to ensure that he is able to get that is to wait until he can get to America where his family is safe. And then allow him to be written into whatever. So I'm going to go on and believe. I mean, I know that they work together after like the true story is that there he comes and there's success. So I'm sure he got something. It's just I did kind of want it to be mentioned in there. But what did you think of the tonal difference in the movie? So there's a big shift when it starts off. It begins with this super high energy and I called it bouncy when I was doing the FF plus review of this, there's animated pixel graphics and video game references. And it's just a lot of fun, right? It it felt more like a video game movie about Tetris. And then we transition into the middle of the movie, which is the biggest chunk. And it's truly this like technology focused espionage, cold war thriller. And then at the very end, it goes into crazy territory again and we start getting like pixelated char case, char, char case, <laughs> pixelated car chase sequences that did not actually occur. And it's just very heightened and exaggerated in its bookend sections. And I, I, I don't know. I enjoyed those sections, but I don't know that I felt like they mixed well with the way that they structured it because it was, all exaggerated, then all very serious thriller, then all exaggerated at the end. Did that work for you? Well, work for me is is no, I mean, not completely. <laughs> this is what I mentioned earlier and that in the moments I was all in for pixelated fun and felt like I was watching console wars on a little bit more mature level with one game. And then when we get to the end, near the end sequence again my wife steps in and she goes that was kind of cool when the cars hit the wall and they sort of pixelate it's fun doesn't really make sense butted up against this thriller aspect of it where you have like the born supremacy for video games happening with business conversations and so i think on their own they're a lot of fun but they don't quite line up with what's happening in the middle they don't take away from the story but I'm almost inclined to because I was leaning more into the thriller aspect of it. Don't give me the don't give me the pixel stuff because the pixel stuff implies simplification, it implies light-hearted stuff, primitive, and maybe that's what the filmmakers were going for. Again, we're in the late 80s when things were more simple than they are now. 8-bit graphics were becoming the thing. And so I think that the aesthetics of the first part and last part were cool in and of themselves, but I thought they were trying to be like bonus points or like the extra 
like the boss stage or something when it came to a video game. I I don't know that I I loved that. Like I didn't really like the transitions of the pixelated buildings to the real buildings. And part of it, I think, is because of the color grading. I told Krisha, I loved how Russia looked very muted. Lots of grays and blues and cool colors contrasted with Seattle and parts of the U.S. and even Britain that were more warm colors and bright. And that's by design because you've got a cold continent. You've got a very abrasive culture in the Soviet Union. But when you throw pixelation on top of that, it devalues that style. It devalues the intent of what you're trying to get across. If you show me cold Russia with its starkness and like one red phone that you can only make a phone call like once every three days and the KGB is watching you or listening to you, that's fine. But when you wash it over with a pixelated version and then and then show me the building, it it kind of distracts me because I'm like, oh, I'm in a movie, right? Every time you do that, you're basically saying this is fake. <laughs> and I didn't want to believe it was fake. I know it's a biopic and it takes liberties, but don't go that route. If you're because console wars, it works because everything is that way. It's just super hyper real and super pixelated and super gamey. This is a story about a game, but it's really about a negotiation and about the people involved. So while you can elevate the game, I think that's where the mistakes were made visually is that you're trying to vault the gaminess of it when it really didn't need it. Yeah, I think that you're exactly right. I think they wanted the best of both worlds and they knew that they were marketing this off of the name of a game and that people would naturally make an assumption that this is a video game movie. And I even made a post on social media when I first watched this. I was like, is this a video game movie or not? It's not. I called it video game adjacent. It's a biopic. It just happens to be about a business deal that was a video game, but the business deal could have been stocks, could have been housing market, you know, it could have been Facebook, could have been anything. Um, and the story would have been necess- mostly the told the same way, right? From the same necessary steps that they had to take. And so I definitely felt like it was a flourish that was added. Now, that being said, the one thing that I loved, loved, loved was the score. The way that they remixed the Tetris theme into the score in a multitude of different ways. It was almost like you were using it slowed down and then you'd use it like sped up in electronica and then you'd use it like in classical music. It was really, really cool. That was a highlight for me too. And what's nice is that the music felt, I won't say Trent Reznor-esque, but it had the social network feel because of how fast it was. I didn't notice the Tetris theme song until the end credits where nothing was happening in front of me. And I, I, I leaned over to my wife and said, do you hear do, 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 do. I was like, yeah, that's good. And now I, if I go back and watch it, I'm going to be more attentive to how that tune is used throughout the movie. Because I think a good soundtrack, if you're not doing a needle drop, a good score is going to be both memorable in and of itself. And it's going to feel very synonymous with what's happening. And it was the latter for me. Like I'm not 
leaving the my experience of the movie going, man, I want to cue up the Tetris soundtrack. But hearing that at the very end, it makes me wonder, was this used? And apparently it was. And so it, it never felt like the music was outweighing the story or the story was outweighing. I mean, I always felt like there was some kind of tune happening, especially during the big set pieces. But yes, I absolutely love the score because of the fact that it was very locked in with the story itself. Yeah, me too. Me too. I think you got to have some tie-in stuff. Like you've got to give us a little bit of a nostalgic tug, right? It's always, always the struggle with stuff in this current era that we're in. I mean, I just got done talking yeah. about the Super Mario Brothers on an FF Plus, and so it's fresh in my mind and how it's tough to give the right amount of nostalgia and not overdo well, it or underdo yeah. it. Well, and there were there were a couple of moments, both in the same scene, where I got a little, ooh. <laughs> it's when Hank goes to Nintendo of America. And again, not knowing the timeline, not knowing the, the dates of when things released, he goes and the deal with the arc at, at the time, he, he had thought that the deal with the arcades fell through because they were sold to, I think, Sega. Sega. And he goes to Nintendo of America in your hometown, Seattle. Yes, sir. And <laughs> I bet you love that. Yeah. <laughs> and I get the whole, like, something is covered up. I don't notice it. It's very small. It's got a little little sheet over it. And he signs an NDA. And right when he signs the NDA, I was like, that's the Game Boy. And sure enough, they yeah. the little, they pulled the little blanket off. I'm like, oh my gosh, the Game Boy rocks. And the thing that made the the scene for me is when Hank says, you're going to sell a lot of these when you package it with Super Mario Brothers. A lot of kids are going to love this. You package it with this, and the way he was able to, on the fly, shrink the screen size down through some code showed his coding swag. You know, I didn't, you know, that wasn't on, that wasn't on display enough for me. There was the moment with him and Alexi in his apartment, and then there was this. But then watching him port it over and saying, it's not perfect, but then he says, you package it with this, and you're going to sell 10 times this because this game is absolutely addictive. And I think that's the other thing that the movie got right is the addictive nature of Tetris. I love the fact that when he's talking to, I think it's a banker at the very beginning, he says, it's not that I want to keep playing. It's that I can't stop thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And I remember yeah. Aaron getting my first PC, a little Acer computer with windows 3.1 and it had a version of Tetris on it and I couldn't stop playing it. It's such a, great game that has mountains of of complexity to it it continuously gets harder and harder and i don't want to say that the movie should have done this but it it made me want to see like okay let's talk about the history of tetris like how it's evolved how it's become part of the gaming competition world where you have this hyper version of it because it's evolved i mean it definitely has evolved in a lot of different ways, you watch YouTube videos of these guys that are going like ultra Tetris where they're going extremely fast. I don't think it would have been appropriate for this movie, but I think that at least in part, what the movie got right was elevating how successful Tetris would have and became eventually as a video game. I agree. Definitely one of my favorite scenes as well, not only because they were in Seattle and Howard Lincoln wasn't just a vice president at Nintendo. He was a former CEO of the Seattle Mariners. Uh, he, but yes, that scene I thought nailed 
my experience because I remember the game board. Like we were alive. We were in that age group. We were young. And what I remember is my next door neighbor, Michael Penn, his mom was a school teacher. And Michael and I were into video games. You know, we, we had Nintendos and we would play them. But his mom, I remember going into the living room all the time and she would be sitting there with his Game Boy, technically it was his, playing Tetris. And that's all she ever played. And I thought that that scene really understood that that's what ended up happening because he was right. It wasn't you and me playing Tetris at age eight, nine, ten. It was Michael's mom, <laughs> the 40 something year old single mother who was done with the crossword and the paper for the day. And she'd just sit in her rocking chair and play Tetris, right? And adults fell hard for that, which opened that Game Boy up to such a different market than Nintendo had ever imagined being able to crack into. And so it really did have the impact that it, it, it can almost feel like exaggerated and overstated. Like we're really making a big deal about Tetris here. Like couldn't, it wasn't possibly that impactful to the gaming industry, but in so many, it really was, you know, it, it truly, truly was. So, well, it, it was a game that was, that was, I, <laughs> it was portable. Yes. For the game boy, but it was portable in that you could push it to almost any platform. Oh yeah. Easy to replicate. Yeah. That and that's that's I think what helps drive this story is that and why I think we get lost in the deep end of the financial pool where he's talking about wait a minute Atari's got the rights to it what how does Atari have the rights to it and when you say video games what do you mean like that moment where the contract was rewritten to specifically define video games and a video you know a a, a computer game being one with a keyboard and a mouse and a monitor. It's because of the way in which a game like that can be ported so easily. Contrast that to Naughty Dog's The Last of Us Part 1 that in 2023 has now only been ported over to PC. Now, granted, there's a reason and not well. and you want to have <laughs> exclusives to a platform and, and probably some hardware issues, but it's also a complex game. I mean, it's not like they're making Tetris 2023 edition. But there's complexity. And when you try to port something to multiple outlets, an Xbox, a PS4, a Switch, whatever the whatever the game console is, that was the same way back in the 1980s. You had to get rights to arcades and, and handhelds being the newest thing. But PCs were different than an Atari or a Nintendo Entertainment System that was a home game console. All those things having to be negotiated, that game, I think, in, in part, opened up the doors to say, oh, we can have a game that ports to all these different things and really not lose its integrity. That's the other thing. You play Empire Strikes Back on an arcade console and you port that thing out and you create a version of it for the Atari 2600, you're, obviously you're not getting what you're getting inside an arcade, but you take Tetris and put it on an arcade screen and then you go home to your Nintendo, it looks exactly the same. And it looks exactly the same on a Game Boy, except for the fact that you're on a monochromatic screen. And I think that's the magic of a game like that, is that you never lose the integrity or the gameplay or the mechanics 
because it moves from port to port. And I think that is what part of what elevated its value beyond its just great gameplay is its accessibility across multiple platforms. I completely agree. 100%. I think you're right on the money. And it's just such a, it's a pick up and play game too. Like it's, you could pick up Tetris and just do a run of Tetris. It's kind of like, I think I talk about roguelite video games all the time. that are these new style of games that are based on doing a run. You just go through one run of a level and then it resets and you start over. You do it again. Tetris is that kind of game. You can just play it for a couple rounds and then you put it down, right? It's a lot different than when you jump into a video game that is broader, that is storytelling involved that you have to get get into and like let yourself really fall into the, the narrative of or even to just get into the habit of doing multiple levels. Um, it just is such an easy like I'm going to play for five minutes game or I'm going to lose myself and play for 10 hours game. Um, I mean, there's been many like it <laughs> over the years, but it was definitely one of, if not the first. Have I missed anything else that uh, we need to talk about? No. And I see you nodding your head. Nope, nothing here. I think we've pretty much uh, pretty much nailed everything that we that we could. Well, that's going to wrap up this edition of Feeling Film. We're glad to be back, and we will again be back in a few days. We are going to be talking about the 1973 film "Bang the Drum Slowly." What is that? We didn't know we either until know. like a week and a I half ago. I haven't watched it. Yeah, I haven't seen okay. it either. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, this will be a first-time watch for both of us. It comes indirectly recommended by uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who, you know, we talk to on a semi-regular basis. No, we don't. But, yeah, we'll talk more about that along with the movie, of course. So we're looking forward to that conversation. Tune in because I think it'll be it'll be interesting, neither of us being familiar with it. Maybe it'll be a, a tanker, but I'm hoping not. It sounds like it's a winner, at least according to one sports guy. So be sure to check that out. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at Feelin' Film or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.